Trevor Story, Pittsburgh Pitchers, Sean Tolison, Is Anybody For Real? We'll talk about that and more with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 12th. It's show number 17 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition of our show for you. We'll talk with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports about the Trevor Story story, about bullpen questions in Detroit and Texas, about the amazing work of Pittsburgh pitching coach Ray Searage, about studs and duds and more. It's another big Tuesday Tout Show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A lot of stories from that first week, and Trevor is only one of the stories. We gotta talk some baseball. And leading off, it's time to say hello to our Tuesday Tout. From Yahoo Sports, it's fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It's great to be here, Patrick. Uh, before we get started, uh, I know you draft a few teams uh, in the run-up to the uh, big league season. How are your teams doing so far after a week? Uh, it, it's, as you know, it, it's really hard to tell. Uh, I think if you have a really bad team, I think that's more likely to show itself quickly. Right now I have a lot of middle-of-the-pack standings, and yes, I'll check them. I know they don't really mean anything, but I'm just trying to do what I think most fantasy owners are trying to do right now, self-scouting, try to figure out where you're deep. What are you good at? What are you not good at? And you know, try to add depth. You certainly don't want to do anything crazy with the strong opinions you held in March, but you always want to be tinkering with the back of your roster. So I'm in the process of doing that. I, I don't really have a sense if it's going to be a great season, a bad season, or a season in the middle. Most of my teams are you know, just somewhere. I don't, I don't have any juggernauts right now. I don't have any teams that are totally tanking, so I think it's too early to tell. What about the other side of the coin, which is looking at your opponents in various leagues? Are there any uh, teams in the early going that have jumped out to a huge lead and you think to yourself, boy, this guy's going to be tough to catch? Well, in the top mixed league, Fred Sinke has won so many times that any time you see him near the top of the standings, and I think he was either first or second as of this morning, you just think, ah, okay, Zinke's close to clinching it because he's such a great player, and I know you have him on this program. He's also a really good guy and, and a good person to listen to. So uh, Fred Sinke's already made a trade in Tout. Uh, he made a trade for Buster Posey, who, even though everybody knows he's a terrific player, I think he's oddly undervalued in two-catcher formats. My colleague at Yahoo, Dalton Del Don, compared Posey to Rob Gronkowski in a fantasy football league, just having this dominant player at one position. I think Posey's oddly undervalued. Again, everybody knows he's great, but I don't think fantasy owners have necessarily paid the full freight on him. Just a illustrate this point a little bit. I was in a mixed league auction maybe two or three weeks ago and in the early part of the auction where everybody had money and the dynamics hadn't really kicked in yet, Kyle Schwarber went for more money than Buster Posey. Now, I know, you know we don't like to see Schwarber get hurt and who knows, maybe he would have had a terrific season, but I think that's ludicrous. I, I think for some reason, maybe because Posey's not new anymore, I, I don't think he, I just feel like he, he goes 4 or $5 less than he should in just about every league. 
and in a round or two later in straight draft leagues as well. I've been watching this all offseason. I think you're right, and I think maybe it's a um, something of a pendulum swing where for a while everybody was very concerned with uh, position scarcity, especially at the catcher position, and then the pendulum swung all the way back to a point where people are saying, well, it really doesn't matter one bit uh, about what position a guy plays because a home run is a home run and stuff like that, and therefore whatever premium that a guy like Posey five, eight years ago would have commanded by virtue of position scarcity has dwindled away somewhat and maybe swung all the way back to where people look at him and say, yeah, he catches, you know, it's a, it's a high injury position. He had that horrible injury a few years ago when he got steamrolled at the plate. And I mean, they've cut back on that in big league baseball, but still it's an injury prone position. He has to take more days off, cuts down on his at bats. You have all these reasons you can talk yourself out of a, out of a, a Buster Posey, but maybe we shouldn't be quite so aggressive in doing that. I think you make a great point that there's been a reaction in the market and it opens up a possible buying opportunity. And also, keep in mind how the Giants use Posey. They use him a lot at first base. He'll get a bunch of starts there. So what you end up getting is a player who gets a ton of volume. That's one of the problems we have with catchers. And even the really good ones, you think they need a lot of time off. But the Giants like to use him at first base. So Posey is almost guaranteed. And also his injury, that, that one time where he got steamrolled at the plate, that's nothing we can hold against him. It's not like he showed some inability to stay healthy or it's just a fluke play that they've actually taken out of the game now. So I think the chance of that recurring is just about nil. Um, we probably said enough about Buster Posey, but I agree with you. The market has overcorrected itself, and it's opened up, as Fred Zinke took advantage of, I think it's opened up Posey to be a little bit undervalued. Just in case anybody at home is keeping score, from 2012 to 2015, the fewest plate appearances Buster Posey had was 595, so he's not missing any time, that's for sure. And that playing first base has got to be the easiest job on the field, so it's a nice balance to that difficult job uh, playing behind the plate. Who did Zinke trade to get Buster Posey, just out of curiosity? I don't remember that. I think Matt Kemp was involved. There was a case of it, and I want to. I don't want to... Put the other owner down. Uh, Al Melchior is, is a fine player and a really good analyst for CBS. There was a situation where Melchior had an A.J. Pollock injury and it had forced him to reevaluate his outfield. And, and Fred, you know, the uh, intelligent, smart, uh, you know, charming Canadian that he is, you know, said, hey, look, I have a lot of good outfielders. And so I don't Kemp and Posey were the main components of a trade. And, and I think the thing, the thing that I really think swung it to Fred's side is he also got a closer in the deal. He got Hector Rondon, who looks like, He's going to be a really good closer for a Cubs team. That's probably going to be 95 wins or so. So um, I don't. Re- I apologize. I don't remember the full components of the deal, but I know Kemp, Rondon, and Posey were the main parts of it. Moving on to the uh, first week of the season, besides the injuries, uh, you mentioned A.J. Pollock just before the season. Shinsu Chu is out. Uh, he's one of the guys on my tout AL team. Uh, that's a kind of a disaster, especially in a single-league format. But uh, the big story in all of baseball and fantasy baseball is Trevor's story in Colorado. And a lot of fantasy writers, a lot of talking heads, have been very excited about the explosive start of Trevor's story. And, of course, the question immediately has arisen, is he the real deal? And the way many experts are framing that question is uh, would you trade Trevor Story now at what could be the peak of not just this season, maybe his entire career? First of all, uh, full disclosure, I do not own any Trevor Story, so I'm, I'm sitting this out and watching it and, and wondering you know, when it's going to stop because it's a little bit frustrating to see somebody just clobbering all these home runs and you're getting no benefit from it. But let's look back. I mean, this is somebody who... 469. I mean, solid, especially for a middle infielder, even with some PCL at bats in there. But 
he was not seen as any kind of a can't-miss prospect. We thought he had power. We thought he'd strike out a lot. He, he's had a perfect opening week schedule where he goes to Arizona, which is a terrific place to hit. Obviously, he gets the Colorado home game. So what will eventually happen with Colorado at home is the way the atmosphere messes with the way ball baseball is played in Colorado. You're going to see most of the Colorado hitters have really ugly road splits. That hasn't come into play for Story yet or anybody because of the beginning of the season. But eventually, all the stuff that they get from Colorado, they'll give some of it back. It, won't, it certainly won't be all of it. It's Colorado is still a net gain for anybody who plays there, but keep that in mind as well. I've seen some pundits who think he's a top 50 player now. I, the, the way I look at it, you bank the seven home runs. If you can get, I don't know, maybe you can't get top 50 value in, in most leagues, but even like top 60, top 70 value, a player who you felt confident is going to be good, it's just no track record here yet. I would certainly, and remember too, something you can, you can play on now. Now that he's hit seven home runs, it's one thing when he hits a couple and people can shrug it off. Now that he's at seven, one of the things that kind of rules the way people live their lives now is fear of missing out. You find somebody who thinks you know, maybe they almost drafted story or maybe they, you know, they like Colorado hitters like we all do. or you, you can probably find somebody who isn't in on this, who wants to be in on this. If I own story, I'm not saying you have to trade him at all costs. I'm not saying you have to decide that you have to trade him today no matter what. I'd certainly be asking around and see if somebody, if you can use fear of missing out, if you can use Colorado you can use the shiny new toy, whatever it is. I would certainly be trying to sell them. This is one of those situations where I think the real enemy of the uh, sound decision is recency bias and confirmation bias. And by recency, I mean what happened most recently, of course, and we're all subject to that. But there's also a bit of confirmation bias in that somebody who, for whatever reason, picked up Trevor Story as an injury replacement in the early going, as somebody threw on reserve because, hey, what the heck, a shortstop in Colorado, why not? And all of a sudden he has this tremendous start, and you kind of look at it and go, wasn't I clever? And uh, and as a result, you're a little more unwilling to, to entertain the idea that this is an asset that needs to be moved. And one of those uh, confirmation bias lines that I, I would look at is he's a right-handed hitter who has five of his seven home runs against right-handed pitching, which seems to confirm that he's the real deal. And in fact, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of park effect here, although uh, he's had more home runs away than at home three to four. I think I'm with you. If somebody uh, was interested in Trevor's story, I'd uh, certainly entertain an offer, and I would probably be subtly shopping him around because I think if you throw him out there on the trade market in a fairly aggressive or open way, immediately everybody's hackles rise and they say, what does he know that I don't know? What's wrong with Trevor's story? I think you make a great point about when we make moves that pan out, it's very difficult to not get caught up in, oh, yeah, what, what a smart move I made. And, and you fall into that confirmation bias trap. And one of the key components to being a good fantasy owner is trying as much as you can to keep the emotion out of it and just see your players as objectively as possible. And if, and if you're having problems with somebody where you're, you're run away with optimism or run away with pessimism, you know, you have a big name, got off to a poor start, whatever, seek out other opinions. Seek out people's uh, ideas that have nothing to do with you or see what was written about the player two or three weeks ago. Most of these players haven't changed that much. I guess some guy may have a new stance or some guy may be doing something different, maybe get his eyes corrected or whatever. But a lot of these guys, it's just a case of there's been a hot week. I mean, Story hit seven home runs, so we, we can't just poo-poo that off because that's such a huge number. Maybe signature significance applies to the old Bill James theory. But a lot of these guys who got off to good starts, if they had done it in July 7th to the 13th, you know, people might not even notice because the stats are starting to get a lot of weight to them and it takes a lot to really move in the opinions of people. It's just, 
you know, we watch all the spring training baseball. We can't wait for these people to play, and they go out and things happen. And it's, it's human nature that we want to apply some significance to what we've seen. But in so many cases, we're going to look back and we're going to say, oh, yeah, remember when you know, last year Adrian Gonzalez hit five home runs in the first three games. He wasn't any different player than Adrian Gonzalez. He just had a good series. You know, maybe Trevor Story just had a good week. Uh, I certainly would be trying. I would at least be gauging the market. And if you can't, if you can't find a trade that makes sense to keep them, you, you know, you don't get locked into feeling like you have to do a deal. But the, maybe the best point of this whole conversation is you, you mentioned how you know, it's just easy to get carried away thinking that you did something clever and just try to stay divorced from that. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, I know if, if I had them, as I said, I think I'd be trying to gauge the trade interest around the league. Uh, especially in keeper leagues because he's young and and uh, probably at a very low salary in most uh, fantasy formats, a very low round in uh, draft type formats. And if you're allowed to keep him at a premium price like that, uh, it, it seems to acquire even more value. And uh, I'm I'm with you. I'm quite suspicious that what this is is a hot week by a fairly talented young player. But things will even out as they often do in baseball. Always do in baseball. I'll say. Uh, Scott, you mentioned a little earlier Kyle Schwarber going for more money than Buster Posey in a lot of drafts and a lot of auctions. After he got injured, and he's out for the year uh, with that collision that he had in Chicago with Dexter Fowler, you tweeted, and I quote, Can the Cubs recover from the loss of a 242, 353, 479 bat who can't play defense and hasn't hit lefties at this level? Sure, I think so. How overstated do you think is this injury as far as the impact on fantasy baseball and real baseball? First of all, let me apologize to anybody who's a Cubs fan or a Schwarber owner because a couple of people felt like I was kicking them in the gut, and I, I wasn't meaning to do that. My tweet was more a statement of how deep the Cubs are. They have Jorge Soler ready to go. They have some players who bounce around the field and can play different positions. Uh, they obviously brought Fowler back. Ben Zobrist can, can play almost anywhere on the field. This is such a deep team, a deep, deep organization, that I think they're going to be just fine. And with Schwarber... You know, he had he showed a lot of pop when he came up, but he didn't have a position. He didn't hit lefties well at the major league level, although he did hit them in the minor league. A lot of times, pulled from games. A lot of times, we saw it in the, in the playoffs. We saw it in the regular season that the, they couldn't wait to get him off the field. He just looks like a DH to me. I think he's going to hit forty home runs someday, but it's going to be for an American League team. The Cubs value defense. They real and Schwarber. I, I hate this because I take no joy from somebody getting hurt. But the play. It just looks like somebody who doesn't feel comfortable in left field. He forgot the cardinal rule of, of all outfield play, which is the center fielder has command of, of any any ball that's between outfielders. It's the center fielder's ball. Schwarber should have given on the play and let Fowler handle it. I, I know it's it's kind of a bang-bang play, but I don't know. I hope the guy comes back. I, I think he's going to be a terrific player down the road, even if it's going to be mostly against righties. I mean, you know, maybe when he gets more exposure to lefties, he'll figure them out, but I thought he was overvalued all year, and I think the Cubs are actually going to be fine. I, I think Soler probably is a candidate to hit 25 or 30 home runs, probably strike out a lot. This is going to be the highest-scoring team in the National League, and I don't think if you own Rizzo, you own Brian, you own anybody in, in this lineup, I don't see how the absence of Schwarber is going to be that big of a deal. Uh, but in a in a fantasy format, especially in a single league type uh, situation, it's going to be pretty tough for a fantasy owner to replace an eight thirty OPS. Yes, and in some leagues he qualifies a catcher too, and we know how awful that pool is. So I, you know, the only leagues that's one reason when I a couple of years ago I know we talked about it on this program actually went to Peter uh, Kreutzer and said I'd rather play in the mixed league, and, and part of it was I'd been in the National League 
only league for a few years, coming second a couple of times, a couple of teams that weren't so good. But I would get frustrated when I would lose a really big player and you'd look at the free agent pool and there's no replacement. What do you do if you lost to Schwarber and he was your catcher? Or, you know, if you're an American League only league, you lost Robinson, Chirinos. There's nothing good. You, you, you hope maybe Halliday, you know, pans out and, and maybe hit the home run here or there. It's so hard to replace these guys. It's hard enough in a mixed league, but I think it's almost impossible in an only format. And, and what can you tell these people? I don't, there's no replacement for a lot of people who have Schwarber as a catcher in an only league. They just, you know, hope you get lucky on somebody or maybe try to make a trade because the pool, the waiver wire pool won't offer any tangible replacement. I think that's true for all players, all offensive players, because of the uh, change in the way rosters are constructed at the major league level, where we have way more pitchers on most rosters and way fewer hitters, which means uh, when we wrap up the draft, there, if you look at the immediate post-draft free agent pool, there's only about 20 names in them, and all of them are bad players. I mean, there's a reason that the things work out that way. When is a major league team, pardon me, when is the major league team going to take advantage of this, of this inefficiency, where everybody's having all these relievers, are going to pitch one inning? isn't some team at some point going to look ahead and say, you know what? I mean, we see this all the time in sports that where people break the game. I mean, the Golden State Warriors are breaking the game in the NBA right now, and it helps them to have unbelievable talent that's hard to replicate. But they figured out a style of play that is better than, it's more efficient. I mean, back 20, 30 years ago in the NBA, teams didn't take threes that often. When they jacked up a three, it was like, oh, three-point attempt. Everybody just stood in their feet. They figure out a better way to play. I, it's, 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 I know I'm comparing apples and oranges here because you know, baseball is a much different game than basketball, but I just feel that one of these days, and we, we're always talking about how smarter teams are and how um, analytics have really stepped into the game, and that's wonderful. Somebody's got to step forward and say, you know, we're wasting opportunities because we don't have enough good offensive players or offense because we're saving up for the rainy 19-inning game that never happens. I think you're right about that, and as somebody said to me a little while ago when we were discussing this, I don't think on the show, but at some point it was the smart move, the the zig while everybody's zagging move, to have more pitchers. And gradually the whole the whole sport moved to this idea of have a lot of one-inning relievers who can go out there and fire like as hard as they can for one inning rather than having to measure themselves even over two or three. Like the, uh, the two or three inning swingman is, uh, is long gone from baseball pretty much. And certainly the five inning, uh, long relief man is, is, has completely disappeared. And maybe if some team can figure out, Hey, uh, you know, if we can carry three pinch hitters and defensive replacements and what have you, instead of one at each position, uh, maybe four or five total, like they used to, that could be a competitive advantage, provided we can find pitchers who can handle the load. And if you look at how the load is distributed, it's usually not as dire as you need a fresh reliever every inning from the fifth on. We've been talk about this before on this show. One thing I would love to see teams do, and I know these guys aren't falling off trees, but think of how valuable a Tim Wakefield or an R.A. Dickey could be on a team, even as a reliever, just as somebody who can pitch with very minimal rest, who can go very deep in games or just you know, save the bullpen on the day when you're getting creamed or something because they throw a pitch that doesn't really tax the arm that much. I wonder if teams will ever see that. It's kind of an outside-the-box idea, and, and a lot of guys go to the knuckleball when everything else fails. You know, um, they, they can't get the regular stuff to work, so they try that. But I always feel like there, that could be a way to get away from that one-inning reliever thing and, and bring back somebody who, as you talked about, a swingman, you know, somebody who can pitch multiple innings, start if needed, pitch on short rest. I think that that might be an opportunity down the road. 
I'll tell you what I think is another opportunity for somebody to, to realize at some point, and that is after after pitching his start, a starter will take a day off, then have a throw day, then then rest a little, and then, ha- and then pitch again. And somewhere in that five-day span, he's going to throw the equivalent of a couple of innings at reasonable effort. Why couldn't he come into a game on that throw day and throw for real even one inning. Now all of a sudden you're getting more innings from your better pitchers, your best starters. I mean, imagine, for instance, in Boston, if David Price could pitch his usual 200 innings or 210 innings as a starter, but they also managed to sneak him into 25 games as a one-inning reliever. Now all of a sudden you've replaced arguably the worst innings you're going to get from your bullpen with some of the best innings you can possibly get from your best pitcher. Was it Price that did it last year in the playoffs? That's the Blue Jays did it with somebody where they brought in a starter. I think it was Price, where they brought him in the middle of a game, and the idea was, well, he was going to throw anyway, so let's just have him throw in on the field. I think it's a great idea. Um, but you know what I want to see? The, I guess the general thought here is I hope baseball, I hope teams, how frustrating is it when we watch baseball games get played and closers don't get used in games because no save situation comes up? And we talk about when our, when our managers and organizations going to accept that the high leverage situation is good enough to bring in Kenley Jansen. It doesn't have to be a safe situation. You don't have to manage by the definition of a stat. I, I think most reasonable people see how absurd that is, but baseball still hasn't changed, or at least hasn't changed very much. You see maybe a Joe Madden will be creative, or you know, two or three managers, but most of them you know, manage by the rule. They manage not to get criticized. They manage to keep their job, all that stuff. I just hope we keep evolving. I hope we keep seeing some of these inefficiencies, you know, whether it's bullpen use that changes or you, know, you mentioned a great idea with the starting pitcher pitching on a, on a throw day. Uh, you know, we're starting to see, I don't know if I like it or not, we're seeing a lot of teams batting their pitchers. Eight. At least it's an attempt at trying to evolve and trying to trying a different idea and seeing if it's more efficient. I know batting order doesn't mean a ton in the whole scope of things, but I just hope baseball continues to do that because in a lot of ways, the way the game is played and the way the game is defined has been so constant that they're almost a barrier put in front of you that makes some teams and some managers and some people in baseball hesitant to try different things and you know change ideas. It is. Uh, my master notes last week, Scott, was about the idea of dynamic bullpen usage and high leverage exploitation and that kind of thing. And, and one, of, one of the things that popped up while I was looking into it was uh, Houston Street was asked about this whole issue, I think in relation to Houston signing uh, um, Ken Giles and then not using him as the closer, which I think had more to do with financial ramifications than it did with his ability. Uh, A.J. Hinch said all the right things. We're going to use him in the high leverage situations. We're going to be dynamic with his use. He's such a great pitcher and so forth. But what Houston Street said was it really does help for everybody in the bullpen to know when they're likely to pitch because they have to get ready. And he said uh, he pitches 60 times a year, so there's 60 outings plus warm-ups. And then he says he also pitches 35 to 40 times a year in the bullpen when he doesn't get used. And he says up and down, warming up, it's really hard on a guy. And then he made what I thought was a really interesting point in relation to that. How do you know what situation is the highest leverage in the game? You don't know that until after the game is over. And I went and looked up uh, on Tom Tango's site the, the leverage charts. And if you come in in the seventh inning with a with nobody with a, a one run lead to protect, and there's runners at the corners, the the leverage is actually lower than it is if you're protecting a one run lead in the ninth with nobody on, and so it could be that managers perhaps inadvertently I think have been saving their closers for the highest leverage situations without even realizing it, and that 
maybe there's something to the idea that everybody knows his role. I'll accept that second point that they're human beings and you know, there's something to be said for the definition of the job. But what frustrates me is why you, why do we need to use your best reliever in a three, a three run lead in the ninth inning with nobody on and the seven, eight, nine hitters coming up? You know, I, I do think that also, and we, we have very difficult time measuring this because a lot of times we're not just privy to the information, but I think the best managers, I remember Eckersley used to talk about how Tony LaRusso would use him and he would say, that the idea that Larusa had was that, look, I'm only going to warm up Eckersley if he's coming into a game. He didn't waste, and none of that, you know, get up, get, you know, get down, get up. I've seen games sometimes where closers warm up a bunch of times in an extra inning game because a safe situation might come up, and then when it doesn't come up, they have him sit down. I think that's not only the, just a bad idea, just strategy-wise, I think it's a good way to get somebody hurt. And so I wonder if maybe some of the better managers, you know, we, we talk about what makes a good manager and some of the things we can see bullpen usage and then it may be things like you know how well does he communicate with his bullpen or how often do guys warm up in a game and not come in i i think that the important part of what makes the team successful or bullpen successful that we can't always know the facts or measure you're listening to baseball hq radio i'm patrick david and we'll have more with scott pianowski of yahoo sports in just a second but first let me tell you about baseballhq.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business it's because baseballhq.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information this week we have week one observations by our batting and starting pitcher buyers guides columnist Stephen nickrand Christopher Olson's Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the American League East looks at Brock Holt's hot start and much more. And in his rotisserie gaming column, Joseph Patelski looks at that draft day hangover. And that's just a small part of the package at BaseballHQ.com. During the season, we have facts and flukes performance validation, daily playing time analysis, matchup reports and fantasy dashboard, extensive team coverage, and our fantastic minor league scouting. And of course, there are the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. All of it is only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with our Tuesday tout guest from Yahoo Sports, fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. And Scott, we were talking about bullpens, and of course you cover bullpens at Yahoo Sports in a column called Closing Time. And recently you looked at the depth of the Texas bullpen with Sean Tolleson, backed by Sam Dyson and Keone Kayla, and you said that depth poses a problem if the situation goes off the rails. I'd have thought that having capable backups in a more or less defined pecking order, Dyson, then Kayla, would be a positive well, if Tolleson is shaky. Why do you think that's not of, so? Which in one of my key leagues, I do need Tolleson. And it makes me nervous to know how good Dyson is and how good Kayla is and how well both of them pitched last year. And Dyson was acquired in the middle of the year. and it, All these guys can miss bats. Uh, Dyson, I think, has a really high ground ball rate. I'm just nervous that Tolleson hasn't been the closer for that long of time. They actually steered a safe situation again, uh, away from him in the playoffs. So I think that he may have less of a leash. Remember, too, Texas designs itself as a playoff team. This isn't like a situation where a team may be you know, a 70-win team or something, and they don't necessarily have to jump up and down and make changes if things get messy. I'm glad to see that Tolleson did right the ship a little bit. He, he came into a game with runners on and allowed a hit. It wasn't really that big of a deal. Uh, you very hard to get out of that situation, but then he had a clean save 
over the weekend. I think it was really important for him to convert that save. What makes me nervous as a Tolson owner is that I just think there's a lot of good options behind him, and it's not clear who the handcuff is. Dyson actually pitches closer to Tolson, uh, usually the eighth inning guy, and sometimes that will lead to the, the way to speculate on a bullpen is, is who's the person pitching in front of the closer, but that isn't always the case. Sometimes maybe maybe the person the eighth inning, they like him in that role, or maybe they see more strikeout potential with Keela. So as a Tolson owner, I find it frustrating that I don't know that there's one specific handcuff to go here, and, and maybe the Rangers don't know. Maybe it's one of those, we'll cross the bridge when we come to it, they have a deep bullpen. So I guess as a Tolson owner, I'd feel better if they didn't have logical alternatives because I see two really good alternatives. It makes me more nervous. And especially, as you said, when the question is, uh, usually you're not going to be able to get both of them right away out of your waiver pool or out of your free agent pool, and, and uh, now you got to pick between Dyson and Kayla. I think I'd lean to Dyson because of the ground ball tilt. He's an okay strikeout guy, not in Kayla's league, of course. But then you wonder, geez, are, are they going to, when push comes to shove, are they going to go with the guy who gets all the Ks? It's a, it's a tough question. Also, what teams may do sometimes is they may decide, well, we need a proven closer. We, you know, quote unquote, proven closer. You know, they may trade outside of it if if Tolson goes bad. So it's it makes me nervous, and also Texas makes me nervous. I know it hasn't been the greatest offensive park after for a while. It was one of the absolute best, and it's played a little bit uh, more closer to neutral in recent years. There's been some changes in the I think the structure of the park that have affected fly ball to right field, but it still makes me nervous. I still think on those hot summer nights it's going to be an awfully uh, small park, and Tolleson did have some home run problems last year. And again, another reason to like the ground baller. Uh, over to the Tigers' bullpen in closing time, you said you have some reservations to be charitable about Detroit closer Francisco Rodriguez. What's your problem with him? Well, for one thing, I two things, actually. One is that he's fastball below 90 now and that just makes me nervous he's just throwing his off-speed pitches all the time doesn't have any confidence in that fastball and why should he it also speaks to i live in suburban detroit and i've seen todd jones and i've seen a bunch of uh, fernando rodney uh, jose valverde he was good for a couple of years and then he kind of lost it uh, joe nathan you know, basically he had his career end in detroit uh, they acquired soria in a trade that didn't work out the year they picked him up i I don't necessarily have a stake in the Tigers, but, you know, they're on all the time. You go in a bar, the game's on. I mean, I would like them to be good, even though I consider the Red Sox still my hometown teams. I grew up there, but I'd like to try to be good. I just feel like this bullpen, this really has nothing to do with the objective analysis of, of, of uh, Rodriguez, but I feel like they've always guessed wrong on, bull, on bullpens. And Rodriguez, at the stage in his career, all the pitches he's thrown, the fastball velocity going in the wrong direction, he's another guy's had some home run problems, everything. And that blown save against Miami was hit hard. I know it's just a sample of one game. But he was facing the bottom of the lineup. There was no Giancarlo Stanton to worry about. And they were just hitting rockets off him. I think he has a long leash because of the contract. I don't see a great hedge in Detroit. But I'm glad I don't have Francisco Rodriguez. He really makes me nervous. I was going to ask if you were worried about Francisco Rodriguez, whether you have him or whether you're looking to snipe his replacement. doesn't sound like you're real confident they have a, a clear replacement, do they? I, I don't see it, and also I think I think with the contract and the way Brad Osmus has managed as long as he's been here, I think they're going to give him a lot of leash. I think he's going to get the chance to blow a lot of saves, and I think he's going to blow six, seven, eight saves. I mean, it may be a case of if all you care about is the handshake, and you don't necessarily care about the ERA and the, and the whip. And there are some leagues where you're just chasing the saves. You have a really good staff else otherwise, and you need him to do one thing for you. Maybe he'll just cobble the other thirty saves, but. 
I'm glad it's not on my team. And also, I can't watch him. I, I just don't have the stomach for it. Maybe there's only five or ten watchable closers in baseball. I mean, not everybody can be like an Andrew Miller, you know, a Craig Kimbrell or whatever. You know, Wade Davis has turned into that guy, Kenley Jensen. There's a lot of guys who, for whatever reason, they turn into – remember uh, the Orioles used to have Stan House, their reliever, and, and Earl Weaver used to call him full pack because every time he came in, he had to smoke a full pack of cigarettes. I, I, I'm not a smoker. But if I owned first year Rodriguez and I had to watch him all year, I, maybe I would be a smoker by the end of the year. You also had an interesting blog post recently about Pittsburgh pitching coach Ray Searage. A minute ago we were talking about how players like Trevor Story or guys who come out of nowhere maybe have benefited from some outside influence like a coaching change or a coach who says maybe you should try it this way. Well, Ray Searage has been performing miracles in Pittsburgh the last few years. Uh, Francisco Liriano, A.J. Burnett, J.A. Happ, and this season Juan Nicasio looks terrific out there after coming over from Colorado. So the first question I have for you, how much do you think a pitching coach like Searage can really enhance a pitcher's performance? I think a lot. There's been too many hits here. I actually made a list, and, and you ticked off most of the guys. He also, remember, they got Mark Melanson, who was terrible in Boston. He'd been really good in Pittsburgh. They had some run with Edison Volquez. Vince Worley was was uh, effective for a while. I mean, everybody had given up on Burnett by the time he got there. J.A. Happ, definition of a journeyman. J.A. Happ should give 10% of his salary to Ray Searage. He just got a huge deal from Toronto really because he had that outstanding run in Pittsburgh. And look, I'm not in the clubhouse. I mean, I, for all I know, it, it could be part of it. It could be the, the defense of the Pirates of the park or, you know, something with Hurdle. Maybe they, I, I know the, the Pirates are doing some interesting things. They're actually bringing pillows and mattresses on the road so players get their preferred sleep. Maybe that we talk about advancements in baseball. Maybe the Pirates are ahead of everybody else on sleep. You know, maybe they're figuring something out with that. I mean, you would think you know, nutrition has come such a long way and conditioning and all that. Sears has fixed too many guys. Too many people have gone right here, and a lot of guys who we had no right to have. It. I mean, Juan Nicasio, complete journey. Part of it maybe was Colorado. I mean, you know, who, nobody has a chance to pitch there successfully, but he didn't do anything special with the Dodgers last year, and now he, he pitched so well in spring. And the walk strikeout, I do believe in a little bit in spring training. I know people like to poo-poo that stuff, but the whip, the ratio was so good. And then he had a terrific start the first. I actually don't have any Nicasio, and it really makes me sick that I don't. He's the type of player I like to buy into. But I think Sirius has just become a guy. And, you know, it, Patrick, I think it's also with organizations. I mean, the Pirates have done really well with this. Look at the Cubs and, say, Jake Arrieta or Jason Hamill, how much better they've pitched under the wing of the Cubs, whether it's Chris Bosio or it's something to do with Theo Epstein in the organization or Joe Madden. The Cardinals have guessed right a lot of times on pitchers. It's happened too many times for me to not think it might be something that they're doing right. Flip side, Kevin Gossett in Baltimore. A lot of people were expecting stuff from him. When's the last time the Orioles have developed a pitcher? Is Mike Flanagan? <laughs> it seems like this team doesn't know what they're doing a lot of the time. Which, you know, track record, Searage can't, it can't be a coincidence that all these pitchers have bloomed under Searage's tutelage and under the Pirates current regime. I think you have to buy into it. And I'm a believer. I don't have Nicasio. I think he's a hold. I believe in him. I think he's going to be good all season. I believe in Searage, too, and uh, as a matter of fact, I grabbed Jay Happ in the end game at Tout Ale. I outbid Ron Chandler for him uh, after he came to the Pirates from Seattle, and Seattle's a pretty good pitching park, too, and he wasn't succeeding there. He had 12 starts, total ERA under two, and I think that that, as you say, that there's something to that. When a guy changes changes his situation, goes from a 
a, a better pitcher's park to a worse pitcher's park in Pittsburgh, although it's not terrible for, for a pitcher there. But the park effect seems negligible to, to non-existent. The only big thing that changes is the team behind him and his pitching coach. And the pitching coach has this track record to boot. Uh, A.J. Burnett, the same thing. 341, 317 FIP in two Pittsburgh seasons. He goes to Philadelphia, up over four, back to Pittsburgh, down under, down around three again. This is not a coincidence. But the question I have for you is, when I grab a J.A. Happen, he's left Ray Sirge's tutelage, as you say, how persistent is the magic that was applied while he was under that tutelage? That's an outstanding question. Uh, that's something that I think you know begs for further research or analysis, and I, I don't, I don't have a great answer to that. The case of Hap, uh, man, talk about the worst place to land. I mean, Toronto's a, a lovely city, but it's such a dangerous park and in such a dangerous division. And um, you said you, you got him an AL. I guess AL only. I mean, you have to change the calculus because everybody has to face the DH, and you know, there's really no safe landing spots in the American League. But that's a great question. I, I wish I had a good answer for it, and I don't. But uh, that's something we need to look at. Is if we're, it's not just what do you do under the steerage umbrella, but where do you go once you leave the womb? I think the uh, the the one example that has me worried is the Burnett example. As I said, he leaves Pittsburgh for a big a dollar contract in Philly, stinks out the joint. He goes right back to being the bad pitcher he was before. Then he goes back to Pittsburgh and immediately reverts to this much better pitcher with much better peripheral stats, much better overall stats. That's the part that has me worried. Uh, now, now here's the thing though: the Pirates also grabbed Ryan Vogelsong, and he got a win last week, but it was a really ugly relief win. Does your appreciation for Sirage's magic extend to Ryan Vogelsong or John Neese? Yeah, I actually have some Neese shares. I always thought he had some untapped potential with the Mets. So I, maybe it's also a case of being left-handed, too. Uh, Vogelsong's just a little bit too old for me, and just, he's going to rely on too much contact. Not that Neese is a big strikeout guy. I, I don't have a, maybe a super way of defending it, but I do believe a little bit in Neese. Vogelsong will have to prove his way onto my roster. All of these guys are veterans. Uh, we might even consider them to have been washed up or certainly mediocre when they came into Pittsburgh. What about the young guys, though? The, he's also the pitching coach of a guy like Garrett Cole, obviously. Jamison Tyon's coming up the, the pipe. It, does your uh, appreciation of Syrage's talents extend to his ability to, to make really good pitchers out of really good prospects? Yeah, I think you'd have to believe that. And Tyler Glasnow, too, who's somebody the moment he hits the major league in any kind of a league. I know in a lot of mixed leagues you can't afford to wait on those guys until they're up, but if you even hear the rumblings of him coming up, I would jump on him immediately. But Tyon, just want to wait because he, he's had what I think, believe he had Tommy John surgery, so he, he just you know pushes his development back a little bit. But yes, I love the fact that Garrett Cole was drafted by the Pirates and a lot of the blossom under this team. And uh, I've always felt I've had Garrett Cole shares just about every year he's been in the majors. I haven't regretted it once. When I think about the elite pitching coaches, I go back, uh, I'm old enough to remember Leo Mazzone in Atlanta, Dave Duncan, of course, with those great St. Louis teams. Mike Maddox, I think, is a really good pitching coach and has done good work. Are there any other coaches out there that we need to be aware of? And it, it seems like something we should build into our repertoire of tools in considering which pitchers we want on our rosters as fantasy players. Are there any other Ray Searages in Major League Baseball anywhere that you know of or any uh, at the opposite end of the kind of pitching coaches who seem to make guys worse? And I think you mentioned one name already. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned Mike Max is terrific. I, I certainly like him, and I think Chris Bosio is doing a great job in Chicago. I don't know if he's gotten full benefit of that. Remember who Jake Arrieta was before he went to the Cubs? He wasn't anything close to an all-star and a Cy Young winner. Uh, Hamill, it, it goes for him, too. And I actually I think they have a very deep staff. I'll talk about one of their guys later. But uh, Chris Bosio, to me, is, is maybe the under-the-radar pitching coach who isn't getting full credit. I remember having Jason Hamill move from Chicago to Oakland, and I was in an American League format league, and uh, and uh, I grabbed Jason Hamill. And as soon as he left Chicago, he was terrible again. It was just like it was like the, somebody had turned the light switch off, and he just went back to being not a very good pitcher. Uh, on a somewhat similar note, to wrap this up, Scott, uh, the Royals have an old warhorse on their pitching staff in the person of Chen Ming Wong. Everybody remembers him from back in the day. I think he had 19 wins two seasons in a row with the Yankees. And uh, then he had arm trouble. He was apparently pitching in mid-90s, high-90s fastballs in spring training, and he made the Royals as a relief pitcher. This all takes place after he worked with pitching guru Ron Wolford of the Texas Baseball Ranch, and uh, some listeners may be familiar with him. We've talked about him on the show. He also helped Scott Casimir recover a career. He's had uh, he's worked with uh, a couple of other pitchers. Do you have faith in Wolford or any of these other trainers or coaches who are outside the system? I mean, you make a logical case. I, I, I think it's possible. I, you know more about, about Wolford than I do, but I'll tell you what, if Wong could be healthy and throw that, that decent fastball in that all those ground balls he gets in front of a Royals team that's put such an emphasis. Talk about you know, people being ahead maybe of developments. The Royals have such a great defense. When you hit the ball against the Royals, they turn into an out so often. It's very reassuring. Oh, by the way, also reassuring for the Cubs pitchers, but they're going to miss Schwarber's bat. But nobody's going to miss his defense. But Ian Kennedy, I think, was the sleeper this year because a lot of people got soured on him last year and they thought, well, he's winning the American League now. But in Kansas City, they, you hit it against Kansas City, somebody tracks it down or, or somebody you know gloves it and throws it to first. Uh, I think Wong, I, I probably will need some tangible proof before I buy into that. But, I mean, at least he's back on the radar because he's probably with the right team. He's had one outing so far, struck out a guy, walked a guy, didn't give up any runs. I think this is a great story, if nothing else, and we should be keeping an eye on Chen Ming Wong, uh, especially if there's injuries or underperformance in the rotation. If he can keep bringing that uh, extremely heavy fastball, that heavy sinking fastball, and can do it for five or six innings at a crack, which he used to do. And according to the story I read online, Wolford really changed his mechanics in a lot of ways because he was putting this undue pressure on his shoulders, which is being expressed as problems in his feet and knees and so forth and he seems to have worked it all out and he's had what two years off which maybe was what he needed so many pitchers so many players in fact come back too soon and they don't give their bodies a chance to heal fully guys in his early 30s and he keeps pounding and pounding and pounding finally his body says enough he's out of the game for two years now here he is back with two years rest underneath him, he's really a 34-year-old player, if you think of it in those terms, and he seems to be prepared. I really like Chen Ming Wong, and uh, I wouldn't uh, be uh, averse to having, an, uh, having him on any roster. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, once the season has started, we ask our experts to talk about their studs and duds for the season coming. Uh, as you look at it, and the studs, of course, guys you would like to trade for or acquire duds or guys you'd like to get rid of or not have on your roster at all. Let's start with the hitters in the American League. Who's a stud hitter you really like? You know, Eric Hosmer, I think, has blossomed to a great player with a lot of fanfare. He was a top 35, 5'5", top 25 hitter last year. You didn't have to pay anything close to that. 
Bill James told us that people who are good at a lot of different things but not necessarily dominant in one area, a lot of times are underrated. Specialists tend to be overrated. Everybody knows Eric Hosmer is a good player, but I think he's kind of a boring good player, and I love guys like that. I love guys who can contribute in four or five categories. He hasn't had a great first week. I think he might be time to go trade for Eric Hosmer. I think he'll have a great season. How about a stud hitter in the National League? We talked about Posey earlier, which you know everybody knows he's good. I'm curious what Will Myers can do. He's 25. He was a Ballyhooed prospect a little while ago. He's been traded by the Royals, traded by the Rays. He was having a good season last year, at least in the category juice with homers and fields. Got hurt. He's got big hands. He doesn't use batting gloves. I don't know if maybe he's always going to be hurt, but I still think Will Myers could be a 25 home run, 15 steal guy if his body will cooperate. I, I still believe in the skills here. Yeah, the body cooperating, I think, is the big issue with Will Myers, but it could depress his price. And, you know, every year you, we go into drafts and we think about our drafts during the year, oh, I hope this guy doesn't get hurt. And it's a, it's a, there's a certain amount of odds in that, in that direction. But sometimes you need to look at a guy who does get hurt a lot and say, geez, if he doesn't this one year, this is going to be a, an opportunity for me to cash. Uh, in the American League, who's a dud hitter, overrated guy you don't want? I know Miguel Sano has great power, but 119 strikeouts in 80 games. He was being drafted like he was a sure thing this year. I, I don't know. I, I know he's going to hit a lot of home runs, but I think he's going to be a batting average liability. He's going to have contact issues. People, everybody else seems to like Miguel Sano more than I do. No, I'm with you. I I, uh, I think Miguel Sano's high strikeout rate has an impact that not a lot of people give full attention to, and that is you can't drive in runs or score runs when you don't put the ball in play. I mean, even if you put, even if you hit a grounder that should be an out, you have a chance of, of having an error or having a, uh, you know, beating out a double play ball and getting a fielder's choice. That puts you on base. It gives you a chance to do something useful from a fantasy perspective. When you swing and miss on that third strike, you're just done. You can't contribute at all, and you haven't contributed at all. And I, I don't like high strikeout guys, period. And Miguel Sano seems to me to be one of those all-or-nothing high strikeout guys I want no part of. Uh, how about in the National League, a dud hitter? Three really quick ones. I, Freddie Freeman's terrific here, but I hate the lineup. They've had a really bad lineup for a while, and now they're actually trying to tank. I don't know how he can produce runs with the people around him. I don't think Billy Hamilton can hit. If he was in a mixed league, I wouldn't pick him up. I know he's going to run, but I think he's going to hit 215 and have an on-base percentage about 270, 280. Some people talking themselves into Billy Hamilton. I, again, we talk about the specialists sometimes are overrated. I don't want any part of him. Addison Russell is going to be a great player someday. And I think sometimes, like, he's on the Cubs. Everybody's picking them for the World Series. Almost 50% of the site surveyed by Yahoo this year saw that the Cubs were being picked to go to win the World Series. Russell's a great defender. Doesn't help us for fantasy. He's going to hit 7th, 8th, or ninth all year in a very deep Cubs lineup. I don't see how they're ever going to promote him, even if he gets off to a hot start, because they're so deep everywhere else. People want it so bad for Addison Russell. I, I think he's going to develop at a modest pace. I think expectations get out of whack. I think the Cubs are a little bit too much of a public team. I just think he's overrated. I don't think he's a bad player by any means, but he's going to be hit 7th, 8th, or ninth all season, and I think that's really going to drain his value. Boy, Scott, you make a really interesting point with that. When we're looking at players in the offseason and, and trying to assess their utility for us as fantasy players, we often look at, do they have a path to playing time? And what we usually mean is, is there a defensive position that they can work their way into or, or is the incumbent kind of a bad fielder or, or injury-prone fielder? 
But the other part of it, and arguably from fantasy point of view, the more important point is, do they have a path to the top of the batting order or at least to the, towards the middle of it? And a guy who's hitting eighth is really in a, in a rough place. He obviously gets fewer plate appearances. He's obviously surrounded by guys who are probably not going to be able to drive him in. It's, it's a tough position. And a guy like Addison Russell, even if he was good, you look at that lineup in, in Chicago and you think there's no way he's going to hit second, third, fifth, sixth. There's just too many good guys there. Too many good guys. A lot of times you think, well, if he, he can just hit his way to the top of the lineup, but they don't have a logical guy to demote. And I also wonder if Joe Madden thinks that he's helping Russell by batting him low in the lineup, no pressure. You know, right. we saw what happened with Castro, where he struggled with a lot, a lot of the you know, attention was on him. Maybe, maybe he couldn't handle it. I don't know. He seems to be doing fine with the Yankees. But uh, I also just think that Russell... It's so easy to fall in love with, with the top prospects. And look, Correa was so great last year, and Chris Bryant was so great last year. And Russell wasn't wasn't bad. I'm not saying at any means he's a bad player. I just think that there's a tendency to want to price in improvement with young players. And in the case of Russell, I just feel like it's going to be a, a more deliberate curve. Scott Pianowski's uh, studs and duds hitters, his American League stud hitter Eric Hosmer of the Royals, his National League stud hitter, take a chance on Will Myers. Of San Diego in the American League, the dud hitter, Miguel Seno, a million strikeouts, can't be good. And three duds in the National League hitting uh, Freeman of Atlanta, Billy Hamilton, can't hit. And Addison Russell can't get to the top of the lineup. All good choices. Let's move over to the mound now, Scott. American League, who's a stud pitcher you really like? I think Justin Verlander, not going to be back to Cy Young form, but I think he's going to be set and forget. I love the way he came into it, just adjusted to the type of pitcher that he has to be in the second half last year. Really good spring. He was really good in his first start. He had one bad inning where Stanton hit a home run that hasn't landed yet. Should have had a win blown by that Detroit bullpen we talked about. Justin Verlander is a top 25 pitcher for me going forward. Not the first guy to have uh, Mike Stanton, uh, John Carlos Stanton, I guess, uh, hit a home run off him either. Uh, can't, can't hold that against him. Uh, National League pitcher, who's a stud for you? Three quick ones. We talked about the Cardinals being right a lot. I think Mike Leach is a great play. Uh, he's not going to walk anybody. He'll strike up just enough to sneak over the relevance in mixed leagues. Joe Ross had a terrific start Sunday for the Nationals. I think people are hip to Ross, but I fully believe. I'm holding If somebody asks you for Ross, I'm not trading him. I don't think you can necessarily deal for him now. It's probably the wrong time, but I think he's going to be a very good pitcher. I would have told you before the season he'd be more valuable than Tyson Ross, his brother. Of course, it's easy to say that now because he's hurt. We talked about Chris Bosio in Chicago. Why not Kyle Hendricks? He's very shielded in this rotation. He's probably their fifth man, but he may be their second or third pitcher by the end of the year. I think he's going to have to be a terrific play in Chicago. Moving over to the duds in the American League, who's a dud pitcher, overrated guy you don't want? I'm rooting for Marcus Stroman, but he's on the short side. He's in the wrong park, Toronto. He's in the wrong division where other than Tampa Bay, every other place is hitter's paradise and usually have deep lineups. And he's going to pitch to contact a lot. Another guy who I think people just want wanted to happen so bad for Stroman that I think some expectations are being baked in that are a little bit unrealistic. It's not that he's a bad player. I just don't like the price. I think the expectations are too high. When in doubt, I like my pitchers to be over six feet. I think he's 5'9", 5'10", maybe 5'8", on a good day. I just think the setup's bad for Stroman. I think he's going to disappoint people. Yeah, the height thing, everybody says, you know, it's nothing to worry about. It's it's his heart and his will and stuff like that, and certainly he has that in spades, but 
let's be honest, you know, there's a, such a thing as leverage and there's such a thing as stride length and all of these advantages that he doesn't have. And that, that certainly is a worry. And of course the competition as well, as you mentioned, uh, finally a national league pitcher, who's a dud for you. You know, James Shields, if you look at old metrics, you know, counting stats, 216 strikeouts, sounds really good. Petco Park was not as friendly last year for pitchers as it normally is. I don't know if that's going to be sustainable going forward, but maybe Petco isn't quite the pitching haven it used to be. His uh, fielding independent ERA last year was in the fourth. I think he's in the wrong side of his career. His fastball, as, as everybody gets older, you know, their fastballs tend to lose some juice. He's in the low 90s now. I think there's going to be a jagged, landing with James Shields one of these years. Maybe it's not this year, but I'd rather be a year earlier than a year late. I think you can sell those 216 strikeouts from last year. I think there's a tremendous downside here. Scott Pianowski, studs and duds on the mound. In the American League, a stud pitcher, Justin Verlander, having a nice, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe a renaissance as a, as a more finesse pitcher, National League stud pitcher. Uh, three of those, Mike Leake of the Cardinals, Joe Ross of the Nationals, Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs. Uh, in the American League is dud pitcher, uh, mini Marcus Stroman, I guess we could call him, and National League dud, James Shields. Big game James, not quite as big as he used to be. Scott, this has been a pleasure. Tell us where listeners can catch up with you and stay in touch. Sure. Uh, Scott underscore Pianowski on Twitter. We're, I'm only there about 18 hours a day, so you have a good chance of catching me. We can talk baseball, let's talk sports. Uh, it's a really fun place to interact and get information. And then uh, on Yahoo Sports, on the Roto Arcade blog, uh, we're there all year writing the closing time blog. We'll, we'll talk about hot news. We'll talk about pickups. We have a podcast we do three times a week. So uh, if you want to talk baseball, there's a lot of places to catch us. Scott Pianowski, thanks so much for joining us here at the Tuesday Tout edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's been so interesting talking with you, a ton of great information, and I look forward to having you back later on in the season. Well, it's my pleasure, Patrick. It's so much fun to talk baseball with you, and um, there's a reason why this is an award-winning podcast, because you do such a tremendous job on it, and it's just an honor to be a part of it. Thanks a million. Scott Pianowski writes about fantasy sports at Yahoo Sports, and his Twitter feed at Scott underscore Pianowski is just an excellent feed. I follow it. I'm an avid follower, and I recommend it very highly. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 17 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. Scott's one of the smartest guys and the nicest guys in an industry full of smart, nice guys. We'll have Scott Pianowski back again later this season. I'm Patrick Davitt. Hope you enjoyed this week's show, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and comment show on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage.
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.